Next up on the Mutual Audio Network, fiction from our future. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. The Leviathan Chronicles Season 2 The story thus far. Oberlin and Tully have been captured by the Yakuza. After being betrayed by Fish Egg Freddy, the pair has been brought to an underground bunker. The secret leader of the Japanese Yakuza, Nankatsu CEO Kasunori Tanaka, has arrived following their ordeal and has said that he now wishes to make examples of Oberlin and Tully. On the other side of the Pacific Ocean, McAllen Orsall has led her strike force into a deadly trap. A deadly biologically based computer virus has infected Leviathan's AI, and time is running out before the pressure shield collapses and destroys the underwater city. In hopes of saving Leviathan, she and her team have infiltrated the remote Black Door station called Iron Gate that contains a vital computer server tracking the location of all Black Door activity worldwide. Using a passcode provided by Mai Lee, McAllen searched the facility, discovering several immortal corpses as well as the infamous server. But the passcode was a ruse and activated a sophisticated booby trap, calling for a massive airstrike on their location, obliterating Iron Gate and sending it and its inhabitants to the bottom of the frigid ocean. Further east, Harlequin and his young ward Lizette are recuperating in a sanctuary facility hidden beneath the Las Vegas Strip. Harlequin has hinted that the real purpose of their presence in Sin City is the recruitment of a new ally. And high above the Atlantic Ocean, Whit Roberts and Sension are racing to get to New York City to rendezvous with Jason Sterling and his two prisoners, young Toshi Tanaka and the librarian Rebecca Kinderman. Together, they will find a secret device known only by Sension to locate the two missing Seraxian aliens and thus provide them with immeasurable power. And now, Chapter 34, Exile of Hope. The surface of the North Pacific Ocean erupted in fire, ash and sulfurous smoke. The pilot of the F-22 Raptor that deployed from Elmendorf Richardson Air Force Base pulled hard on the flight stick and resumed his cruising altitude of 50,000 feet on a northern heading to return to base. Bits of steel and metal detritus continued to rain down on the ocean for a full minute after the devastating GBU-32 JDAM bombs struck the abandoned oil rig known as Iron Gate, annihilating any trace of its existence above the ocean. Slicks of oil spread searing rivers of fire along the surface of the Gulf of Alaska, and the water churned as small pockets were brought to a boil. McAllen also couldn't remember exactly what had happened, or understand exactly where she was. She vaguely recalled there was a panic, and then a great urgency, and that something had gone very, very wrong, and that somehow all of it was her fault. McAllen had been sprinting towards an opening in the mess hall of Iron Gate when the bombs hit. Her body was violently thrown over a hundred feet outside the structure. 
and struck the surface of the ocean brutally, causing her vision and mind to fog over in a haze. The icy Alaskan water instantly forced all the air from her lungs and ripped cruelly at her skin. And while she was vaguely aware of it, she made little effort to hold the ocean's steady downward pull of her body underneath its surface. The frigid seawater splashed over McAllen's face and filled half of her mouth every time she strained to take a breath. The sky, which had shone clear, bright blue earlier in the day, was now obscured by soot, smoke and flame. Soon, the freezing ocean water found its way into McAllen's lungs, and there was no voice left in her mind to try to stop it. The cacophony of explosions and fire became more muted and all the distinct sounds blended together and grew further away. Her body drifted downward into the deep green mist in graceful slow motion, allowing her limbs to float limply out in front of her. I have you, McKellen. I have you. Breathe for me. Come on, we're almost to the ship. Anton swam powerfully towards the Zephyr, which was floating 15 yards away. The rear loading hatch was completely down, opening the interior of the cabin to the elements and allowing seawater to drift inside. It also created a perfect ramp for Anton to drag McAllen's wilted body into the cabin before closing the hatch and beginning CPR to resuscitate her. Anton laid McAllen on the floor and tore open her flak jacket, placing his hands over one another and pumping up and down on her chest. After 30 seconds, he tilted her head back and squeezed her nostrils shut, blowing into her mouth. Come on, McAllen, breathe. A part of his heart sank as he felt the coldness in her body, and he searched desperately for some sign of life within her. He repeated the sequence four times before finally... McAllen gasped for air and began coughing violently. Where did they end but once McAllen regained lucidity, Anton paid no further attention to her, leaping back in the pilot's chair at the helm and urgently bringing the thrusters online, surging the Zephyr forward and steering the ship around the cluttered debris littering the ocean's surface. He quickly brought his wrist to his mouth and shouted into his PCOM. I've got a read on your location, Underchief. Hold on, I'll be there in 20 seconds. Not now. McCallum felt the Zephyr race forward, causing her to shift her position on the floor. She tried to get to her feet but failed to locate any strength in her body. Anton pulled the maneuvering thrusters hard to port, bringing the Zephyr around swiftly. He burst out of the pilot's chair and ran to the rear hatch, activating the quick release to open it. More icy seawater splashed inside the cabin and over McCallum's leg as she saw Underchief Keitha Watson bravely treading water, surrounded by the flaming remains of Iongate, all while holding Gregor Aginsky's limp body above the surface of the water. Get a line on him. Throw me the boy on the side. Watson quickly affixed the flotation device under the man's head and swam towards the Zephyr, pushing Gregor's feet towards the ship, where Anton was able to grab him and carry him on board to the cushioned bench beside the command console. The underchief was bleeding from a gash on her head, while her body shivered with cold. Despite her condition, she showed no signs of slowing down as she ripped open one of the cabinets and tore through the first aid kit. Underchief has... Did you find the... But Underchief Watson ignored McAllen, urgently walking past her and kneeling beside Gregor. She prepped a needle and injected him with coca leaf extract and cardiac stimulant. He's got a weak pulse, shallow breathing, but fading in and out of consciousness. Do you have Robertson's signal? I had him, but after one of the secondary explosions, his PCOM went dead. Doesn't matter. We'll find him visually. Take us towards starboard, Anton. Towards that low piling sticking out. He'd head to high ground if he can find it. Hurry! 
thick walls of smoke and fire made the immediate area around the Zephyr feel like an ever-changing labyrinth. The ship pulled left and right as Anton dodged floating debris at high speed, desperately scanning the surface of the water for Robertson. Each piece of flatsome began to darkly resemble a floating body. Oh my god, is that... Just dark fabric floating in the wreckage. Come on, keep moving. There's so much smoke, it's hard to... There! Starboard, over there! Out of the front windshield, on the right side, was a small chunk of the original Iron Gate structure that had not been decimated in the aerial attack. Robertson clung to one of the remaining outcroppings of the Iron Gate scaffolding that still protruded above the surface of the ocean. Flames surrounded what remained of the pilings below him, and it appeared that he was trapped. The right side of his body and arm looked burned, and he was holding onto one of the steel girders precariously with his left arm. Hang on, Robertson. You need to get to the other side of the outcropping. We can't risk getting that close to the flame. The whole structure of the Zephyr is fireproof. The structure is, but the stealth coating covering the hull isn't. It'll melt off if we get that close to the flames and leave us detectable by every mortal submersible looking for us if we... For fuck's sake, get me 30 yards over to port in the clear water besides that floating debris over there. Got it. Watson raced up the interior ladder, slamming the roof hatch open and manned the grappling gun that was still extended. I've almost got you. Come on, Robertson. Don't you quit on me now. The Underchief squinted her eyes and aimed carefully at Robertson's position. If she missed the piling, Robertson might not be able to hang on long enough for her to set up another shot. And if the rocking of the boat distorted her aim, she could wind up impaling Robertson. Stay still. I've almost got you. Get ready, Robertson! Robertson couldn't hear the words that his commanding officer was shouting at him, but he understood the tone. He redoubled his efforts to clutch tightly to the pilot and did his best not to think about the spreading flames across the ocean beneath him. Gripping the, the twin handles of the grappling gun, Under Chief Watson fired the deck-mounted CO2-powered rifle, landing the hook and its accompanying steel cable roughly four feet below the spot where Robertson was literally hanging on for his life. Drop down! Robertson gingerly used what utility he still had in his right hand to unbuckle his thick leather belt. After managing to climb a few feet down the scaffolding, he wrapped his belt around the thick steel cable of the grappling line and let go of the piling. Robertson zipped down the line that terminated at the open rear hatch. With one strong swing of his legs, he was back inside the cabin of the Zephyr. Keitha Watson slid down the cabin ladder and met Robertson in the rear hatch of the ship. Well done. Thank you, Underchief. I thought I might have been a gunner. Not even close. How's your arm? Not sure. Probably second degree. Let me take a look I don't at want to break up the reunion, Underchief, but we've got incoming on scanner. AWACS radar plane with two F-16 escorts in tow. We need to get wet and low now. Closing the rear hatch. Get us to 5K as quick as you can, Anton. Aye, Underchief. Robertson, I'm so, so sorry about your arm. Yeah, I'll be fine, Councilwoman. Robertson. I'm going to check on Gregor. The ship shuddered and began to sink below the surface of the Gulf of Alaska. With Anton at the helm and Watson and Robertson huddled around Gregor's body, McCallum felt distinctly isolated and alone. No one spoke to her for the next two hours and no one looked in her direction. What's our current depth? I said... What's our current depth? We just dropped below 2,000 feet. Thank you. McAllen rose from the spot on the floor where she was sitting and approached Gregor. Underchief Watson was hovering over him, waving a thin metal scanner across his face that was connected to a data pad she held in her other hand. How, how is he? Not good. Uh, I'm a doctor. I, can... I assure you that my medical training far exceeds yours, and right now I'm busy trying to save my patient. So if you please... McAllen opened her mouth to speak but thought better of it. This wasn't the time, and the ship was already raw with emotion. She walked over to the command center that was filled with diagnostic screens. Robertson wore a headset and data goggles while peering at three-dimensional imagery unseen to McAllen. 
She placed her hand on his shoulder. Oh, please, that hurts. Oh, I'm so sorry, Robertson. I didn't mean to... But Robertson simply continued to stare straight ahead at the projected imagery, not fully acknowledging McAllen's presence. What did the scans show? Is anybody following us? We clipped past some sonar buoys dropped near Iron Gate, but we have clear water now. That's good. That's good, right? Robertson merely shrugged his shoulders. McAllen turned to walk to the helm station, but found that Underchief Watson was already standing beside Anton. Once we clear the Gilbert Seamounts, head west and set a course for Leviathan. Full speed. Wait. Wait a second. We, we can't go back to Leviathan. The cabin sat in silence as Keith Watson turned around and glared with contempt at McAllen, taking one step closer to her. What did you say? Leviathan. We can't go back there. There's There's gotta be another way to find the aliens. The aliens? How fucking delusional are you? One of our men might not make it through the night. Do you understand that? Do you understand what just happened? We were Leviathan's last hope based on your reckless plan to bring everyone back into the city. Well, let me give you a news flash. Your plan failed, McCallan, and you might just have caused the genocide of a race of immortals bent on saving humanity. You are in no position to give any orders to anyone. You're wrong. I'm giving you an order to turn this ship towards Vancouver. An order? No. No, you have no rights whatsoever to command this mission, and this just shows you have no fucking business being on the council. Your judgement is poor, your instincts weak, and you are reckless with other people's lives. Leviathan doesn't need a leader like you throwing people's lives in the garbage. Our city, our home, will be destroyed because of you. I'm in command of this mission now. You're lucky I don't put you in custody this instant. We'll be back in Leviathan within the next 36 hours, and we'll see what's left of our city to save. Until then, you better stay the hell out of my eyesight. Or so help me God, being in custody would be the least of your concerns. McCallum walked to the back of the ship, sat down and absorbed everything. The silence in the ship punished and penetrated her. She had nothing to say. Keitha Watson was right. She had no business leading a strike force or even thinking she could replace Evangeline as leader of Leviathan. Her initial doubt in herself was well-founded and her hubris now threatened thousands of lives. She pressed her hands against each other and closed her eyes as tightly as she could. No tears, please. Don't let yourself cry. Do not let yourself cry. She wanted to vomit desperately, but couldn't bring herself to make any sound or have anyone look at her. She wished she could just disappear in the cold, pitch-black water just outside the hull. Uh. Six hours later, Anton placed the Zephyr on autopilot and walked to the aft of the ship to sit down next to McCallan. I'm sorry. Nobody will talk to me. I'm talking to you. He reached over and grabbed McAllen's hand and placed it in his. The warmth of his flesh was reassuring. They just hoped the mission would be a success. And they're worried about Gregor. I'm worried about Gregor. I know you are. It wasn't... Was it the wrong thing to do, Anton? Anton stared ahead at a spot on the opposite wall and couldn't quite meet McAllen's eyes. Tell me. Assembling the strike force to find the aliens was the right idea, McAllen. You should have... We all should have taken more measure before trusting my lead. It was my mistake. It was my call. My idea. Oh, the fucking bitch. This isn't the end game. We're going to get back to Leviathan. We don't even know the condition in Leviathan. We're assuming we can even dock at the West Hangar Bay. We will. They'll have power restored by now. Engineering Head Denson and Under Chief Ansler are as smart as they come, and they know Leviathan's infrastructure cold. And what if they do fix it? What am I going back to, Anton? A city that I've let down? A citizenry that was depending on me to bring back a Starstone? I am coming back a failure, not a leader. McCallan, every leader of every war has setbacks. Not every battle can be won. And right now, you, we, just need to adjust our strategy. You think we need to evacuate the city? I think we need to consider it as an alternative. 
It will be as a last resort. So even if we save Evangeline, she'll awake to find that she's lost the city that she spent a thousand years building. But she'll be alive. Cities can be rebuilt, McKellen. Trust me on this. An immortal leader can have the luxury of time. A leader of what? If we can't find a star stolen, then Leviathan won't even exist, Anton. Then for a short time, you may just have to accept being a leader. In exile. Okinawa, Japan. Good morning, Mr. Tari. <coughs> Every time somebody wishes me good morning, I end up getting my ass kicked. So I'm becoming more of a late riser. Ah, but today is your big film debut. A very important day was getting an early start. Tali and Oberlin stared at each other. Neither man understood what Kasunori Tanaka meant by film debut. I knew the Japanese market was a little peculiar, but I didn't really think snuff films were what the public was buying. This film will help others avoid the situation you are now in, and will allow me to not be in the regrettable position I am in. Yeah, I'd really hate to be you right now. You borrowed 250,000 from my Yakuza, from me. And now there has been no effort to supply any repayment. This creates a very bad precedent, Mr. Tully. It encourages others to ignore their obligations. This is very bad for business. Today, you will help me assure that the others understand exactly what happens when debts to my company are not repaid. Oberlin urgently peered to his right and left to see if any of the Yakuza were within striking distance of his face. He thought carefully before he spoke. I've seen you before. I've seen you on television, on CNBC. I didn't expect to see you here. The CEO smiled at the calculated move by Oberlin. Uh, you did not expect the CEO of the largest electronics and aerospace manufacturer in the world also be the head of Yakuza? Why is that, Mr. St. Clair? Uh... Maybe what are you meaning to say is that it would be very bad for me if anyone knew of this connection, of my ties to the underworld. Maybe. You mean to imply you might make the press aware of this connection? Are you threatening me, Mr. St. Clair? No. No, I'm not. I just... Well, well, I see the cameras there, and I'm wondering what's going on. Six men stood well behind Kasunori Tanaka, holding high-definition cameras, boom microphones, and lighting. Oh, oh you saw the cameras, and uh, were concerned that my reputation may be compromised. That the share of Nankatsu might plummet if it was widely known that the head of the corporation was only a common chimpira engaged in torture and violence. Is that your threat? I'm not threatening you. No, as I said, the cameras are here for you, Mr. St. Clair. Or more specifically. Mr. Tari. This might be a good time to tell you I'm a little camera shy. In fact, I've been told that I have a face for podcasts. Tanaka-san ignored the comments from Tully and turned to face the camera crew behind them. He silently pointed to two spots in front and to the left of Tully. The camera crew quickly went about setting up tripods and boom mics in the prescribed positions. Look, Mr. Tanaka-san, please let me say something. 
Out of respect to you, sir. Tanaka-san was surprised by this tone of contrition, but remained guarded. You may speak, Mr. Tari. First of all, I'm sorry that I've put us both in this position. I've failed you, myself, and my best friend by borrowing the Yakuza's money. Your money, without repaying it. You lent me money in good faith, and I have dishonored myself by not living up to my obligations. I had information that led me to believe I could find a valuable shipwreck, the Orlando Cortez, that would allow me to repay my debt. But I couldn't find it soon enough, and now I no longer have a boat to search for it. Mr. Tanaka-san, I want you to understand this. I never intended to steal from the Yakuza. I want to pay you back your money. You are a very accomplished man in business. Quite frankly, I admire you more for your success in the shadows than for what you've done in Nankatsu, which is also very impressive. But I know how hard it is to achieve something when the legitimate world has turned its back on you and there's nowhere to turn for any help. Honestly, that's why I came to you. Your sentiment is touching, Mr. Tali, but not relevant. No, no, you're absolutely right. How I got here isn't relevant, but what's going to happen next is... Mr. Tanaka, sir, I can get you back the money that I owe you. I know you are a very smart businessman at heart. You said this is about business. That means it's about money. I can get you the money. I have someone that owes me a substantial... <laughs> Mr. Tully, you always seem so confused. Again, you are incorrect. This is no longer about the money. Really? No. You are almost worthless now. You have no money. You have no business. And when I kill you and your friend, nobody will remember you existed. I'm not a bum, and I'm not worthless. I can I get- said almost worthless. You still have one small job that you can do for me. Name it. We'll do any job you ask us if you just let us- Your job is to serve as a deterrent. You see, the money is quite inconsequential at this point. Even if you could pay it back, the damage has already been done. Others know that you have squandered the generosity in the funds that have been advanced to you. So the most valuable role you can play is as a deterrent to other Yakuza clients. These cameras will record your death. Your very painful, very slow death. That will only come after you've watched your friend suffer the same fate. One camera will stay focused on you throughout, so anyone who ever think that he does not have to repay Yakuza can watch this film and understand what it means to fail in your obligation. Please, this is my debt, and all of your dealings have been with me. Please let my friend Oberlin go. He hasn't done anything. The time is money, Mr. Tully. Let us begin. A dark sense of dread came over Tully and Oberlin. Once again, they had nothing to bargain with and were subject to whims of a situation far beyond their control. Their jailer wanted to see them bleed and suffer, and there was nothing that either man could do to stop or lessen the torment that had now returned. The film crews broke into two teams of three men and each took their position opposite Tully and Oberlin. Come on! You guys don't want to film this? This is sick! This is sick, Tanaka! Two heavyset men entered the room. Each wore black cargo pants with no shirt. Their skin was brightly colored with intricate, vibrant tattoos that Tully would have found exquisite were it not for the hopelessness of their situation. The men looked to be brothers as both sported shaved heads and similarly cruel physiques. The first man opened the canvas duffel bag he brought in with him and removed a pair of black gloves with hard metal studs covering them. While donning them, his brother removed something far more sinister from the bag, a bone-cutting surgical saw. The device resembled a hand 
handheld power tool with a three-inch circular saw blade attached at the end. The bald man smiled as he tested the device and plugged it into a power socket near Tully's chair. Kasunori Tanaka nonchalantly pointed to Tully, indicating that it was time to begin the next phase of his torture. These men, Mr. Tully, take a great pleasure in their work. After beating you senseless, we're going to go about making you a smaller man. Inch by inch, Mr. Tully. You are a tall man, so we might be here for some time. The camera crew tensed, knowing what they were about to see in film would be horrific. The door to the bunker opened, and everyone stopped to gaze at a slender Japanese man wearing a navy pinstripe suit and tortoiseshell glasses. He ignored the gaze of everyone in the room, instead only at Tanaka-san. He approached his kumicho reverently and gave a deep bow before whispering in Tanaka's ear. Tully's head lifted for a moment and watched with fascination as the tiniest fraction of color faded from Tanaka's face. The CEO stiffened almost imperceptibly, but Tully's attention was heightened from hearing that name. Sterling. Jason, do you read me? Mr. Sterling. I know that name. Kasunori Tanaka looked around the room briefly, with every underling's eye locked upon him. He paid none of it any mind, as he quickly turned on his heel and walked out of the room, trailed by his dark-suited assistant. The heavy metal door was shut firmly behind him, dissipating some of the tension in the room, but Tully's mind was now racing. Tanaka's son? In custody? That means against his will. The guy who came into the room specifically said Jason Sterling. And Wit was freaking out in Tibet, so something big has got to be going down. That's why Tanaka was interrupted. That means he doesn't have his own son. The metal door opened and Kasunori Tanaka re-entered the room. The little color that he had left in his face had vacated, and Tully swore he could see the man's hand tremble when pointing to his film crew. Mr. Tanaka-san, I wanted to ask Silence! Gag him now! I know about Toshi! Yamuro! What did you say, Mr. Tully? Mr. Tanaka-san, sir. I said I know about your son, Toshi. Kasunori Tanaka stared back in stark amazement, thus confirming all of Tully's suspicions. I do not have a son, Mr. Tully. No, I, I think you do, Mr. Tanaka. And I think you lost him and are trying to get him back. You see, I know the guys that took your son. And more importantly, I know exactly where your son is right now. Do you hear me? I know where Toshi is right now. Tully made sure to say Tanaka's son's name, Toshi. To read the expression it elicited on Tanaka's face, to ascertain how much he had to bargain with and how valuable his information might be. Every member of the Yakuza moved urgently towards the heavy metal door and filed through it before closing it tightly behind them, leaving Oberlin and Tully alone with Kasunori Tanaka. Do you know how I got my start in the Yakuza, Mr. Tully? I was a little street urchin. Not more than five or six years old. When I was young, I had to steal to find money to feed my mother and family. I made a mistake of stealing from a store that was protected by Yakuza. But the Wagashira decided that instead of being punished, I should be put to work. And so from a very young age, I watched men be beaten, punished, and killed. I have grown up watching the worst forms of suffering. What's your point, Tanaka? My point is that you have one chance now to leave. If you do not tell me what I want, I will kill your friend in the most 
horrible way, in ways only I know how. Tanaka-san removed a long ice pick from his canvas duffel bag and slowly approached Oberlin with it. I will make you watch me kill your friend, and then I will kill you in an even worse way. I will make you wish that you had never set foot on this earth, Mr. Tully. Mr. Tanaka, you said earlier that I didn't have much value to you as a person, and I am telling you now that I disagree with your assessment. No offense. I think right now I have a lot of worth to you. Alive! and almost no worth to you dead. Now I said before that I think you're a very smart businessman, and it's not your style to piss away something valuable. I know where your son is, Kasunori, and I might be the only person on earth that can get him back to you. What do you got me tied up here for? $250,000? You said that's chump change to you. It means nothing but your son, Toshi. Well, I think he's worth a lot more to you than that. In fact, I think letting me and Oberlin loose right now, and having us bring you back your son, might be the best bargain you've ever had in your life. Kasunori Tanaka was stunned by the sudden turn of events, but did his best not to show it to Tully. You are correct, Mr. Tully. You have unexpectedly become a much more valuable asset to me than I would have thought. My son Toshi is my most precious possession, and one that I would protect in a very vicious fashion. You may have some value alive, Mr. Tully, but your friend, Mr. St. Clair, does not. I am going to begin killing your friend now, Jeffrey. And maybe if you tell me where Toshi is, right now you can save- Stop! You listen to me! You fucking listen! You love your son, right? You'd kill anyone that ever heard him again, right? Well, I don't have a son, okay? In fact, I don't have much. But that's my best friend, and I love him the way that you love your son, Toshi. Do you understand that? It's very important that you understand that. Because if you fucking touch him, or if any of your dirty little Yakuza hurts him, I will never, ever tell you anything about your son. And I promise you that you will not get him back. I know the people that took him. I know him. I know Black Door, and I know about Leviathan. I was there. So don't fuck with me, Tanaka. And don't you dare fuck with my friend. And if you think you can kill him and then torture the information out of me, then you are rolling the dice with your son's life. Because I know that time is running out, and you know it too. You can try to beat the shit out of me. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But even if it does, it's gonna take time. There's a rendezvous with the man that has your son in just over 24 hours. If you want to sit here and torture us over $250,000, you are going to lose your son. But you can let us go, and we'll get him back for you. It's your choice, Tanaka. You think about your choice before you touch one hair on Oberlin's head. Because if you do, you will never see your son again. Kasunori stared back at Tully. Tully's eyes were swollen and bloodshot, but he stared back with all the intensity he could muster. He watched Kasunori Tanaka let the ice pick fall out of his hand and clatter on the dirty floor. Can you really bring my son back to me? I can. You have my word. Your word, Mr. Tully, is not very reassuring. Not when it comes to my son. After all, it was your word or inability to honor it that has brought you here to this terrible place. Forgive me if I am not confident in your word. Look, I'm telling you, we know where these guys are going to be. And we know for a fact that your son is with them. So if you let us go... I think that in every good business negotiation, there is a time for compromise. 
Tanaka-san slowly walked over to the metal tray that contained some of the torture instruments left earlier. Tully strained his neck over his right shoulder to see Tanaka picking up a long, slender knife with a flexible blade that looked best suited to filleting fish or flesh. He then picked up another instrument that resembled a nutcracker but larger and with serrated edges. He considered several items before picking up a small metal ring and approaching Tully. Look. I told you if you fucking try to... Deftly, Tanaka unlocked the two handcuffs imprisoning Tully's wrists and then tossed Tully the metal keyring to unlock his feet. Tully winced in pain as blood slowly returned to his extremities, forcing him to hold the chair tightly for support as he tried to stand. No, Mr. Tully. Mr. St. Clair will not be joining you. I am willing to free you, but I need assurances that you will complete your end of the transaction. You've disappointed the Yakuza in the past, so I think I am well justified in holding a little bit of collateral. Your friend Oberyn will stay here with us until you return with my son, Toshi. You told me that the time is running out for my son. Let me assure you that the time is equally limited for your best friend. If you don't return back to Japan with my son in 72 hours, your friend Oberyn will be killed, and I will take the matter of his death with great personal interest. Do you understand, Mr. Tari? Tully looked at Oberlin, who stared back wordlessly. His wrists and legs were still bound by metal handcuffs that imprisoned him to the torturous chair he had been forced to sit in for close to 24 hours. Oberlin looked haggard, worn, and significantly older than he did in Alaska. When Tully envisioned him smiling from the engine bay of the Hail Mary, Kasunori Tanaka walked slowly behind Oberlin and placed his hands on his shoulders. 72 hours. Got it. I come back with Toshi, and you let Oberlin and I go forever. All debts are settled. That is correct, Mr. Tully. Now go and bring back my son, while your friend still has breath in the body. One more thing. If I'm going to find and get your son back here in 72 hours, I'm going to need three things from you right now. What is it? There's probably an APB and wanted posters of my face in every police office from Hokkaido to Bangkok. I need new passports and IDs to get through airport security and if I get stopped anywhere. Second, I need 30000 in US dollars for traveling money, plane tickets, and any bribes I need to hand out to do my job. And what is your third request? Get one of your squids to give me a ride straight to the airport. I've got a plane to catch tonight. listening to Season 2 of The Leviathan Chronicles by Christoph Leputka. To listen to the entire first half of Season 2 right now and get exclusive storyline, purchase the director's cut of Season 2 at leviathanchronicles.com. For more updates and news, find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for listening. You're listening to Wednesday Wonders on the Mutual Audio Network, where you can enjoy the wonders of the imagination. And speaking of wonders, everybody wonders why the Bells in the Bat Free podcast is still plugging along, not only on Friday Follies, but a bunch of times on Sunday Showcase as well. Give Bells in the Bat Free a listen sometime, and you'll wonder how he gets away with some of that stuff. Rated G, family friendly. Caution, occasional toxic puns.